0: So we'll do the short prayers and then uh, (coughs) have some silence so you can settle your mind and also generate your bodhicitta motivation. there was one question from the morning. Okay, so you explain the suffering of change as the condition that even our ordinary happiness is unsatisfactory because it won't last. And if continued, will eventually transform into suffering. Like the pleasure of food transforms into the suffering of indigestion. But I've heard another explanation before. I'm not sure of the source, that ordinary pleasure is unsatisfactory because the pleasure is nothing more than the temporary alleviation of some other form of dukkha. For example, the pleasure of food is merely the temporary, temporary abatement of hunger. The pleasure of company is merely the temporary abatement of loneliness. The pleasure of entertainment is merely the temporary abatement of boredom. Okay, then on top of that, the condition which helped to relieve the original dukkha brings a load of other problems. Food brings indigestion, company brings relationship problems, entertainment brings brain rot. <laughs> <laughs> so he's asking, Is are these all different explanations? And, you know, are they coming from a Buddhist source? Uh, these explanations all come to the same point, yeah? When I was explaining yesterday, using the example of hunger, I was saying, when you start to eat, the suffering of hunger goes down, but the suffering of eating goes up. So it's not just that, yeah? <laughs> so, suffer- so hunger, eating, yeah? is the abatement of hunger, but then after a while you're too full, okay? And so what you did to solve your original problem becomes another problem that you have, okay? And as soon as you finish eating, then the suffer the uh, pleasure, you know, from eating starts going down because you start getting hungry again, although you don't notice it until the suffering of hunger has gotten bigger, okay? And so these two things, one alleviates or changes from the other, but it's not any kind of permanent remedy, yeah? Okay, so I hope that's clear. They, they're they not different explanations, they're the same explanation if you really think of this thing like the scales going up, yeah? So that what you what you do to solve your problem it's just, a, you know, temporarily curing this because the more you do this one, yeah, then you then the suffering of this becomes bigger. So then you stop eating, you don't eat for a while, and then as you do that, then the suffering of hunger gets bigger, and then you so you keep going back and forth. So what it's showing is that um, there's nothing that is real happiness. Okay, that we are designating happiness on a temporary alleviation of pain. Wonderful news, huh? But this is our situation. (laughs) Okay, let's continue. So we're talking about the aggregates are unsatisfactory by nature. uh, because they are under the control of the afflictions and karma. So we're halfway down on page 22. So contemplating that the objects, people, and activities we see as enjoyable are actually unsatisfactory in nature because they are under the influence of afflictions and karma remedies the distorted belief that they are a source of secure happiness. And then we can see that they aren't a se- source of our secure happiness, because when, as soon as we have them, we just have another kind of, you know, unsatisfactory condition, and uh, that eventually turns into pain. Like I was saying, yesterday, as soon as you get your your brand new computer, then you start the entry into computer hell. And as soon as you get your new car, you start, you know, your entry into car hell. Yeah. And we, we don't see that when we have something. We just think this thing is great and it will solve our previous problem without seeing that it's bringing a whole new set of things. Mm. Okay. What we commonly call pleasure is actually a state where one discomfort has decreased and a newer discomfort is just beginning. So that answers the question there, and it is a Buddhist explanation, okay? For example, when we've been standing a long time, sitting brings a feeling of relief and pleasure. But slowly, the discomfort of sitting increases And after a while, we want to stand up and walk around. And we stand up and walk around. At the beginning, it feels good. And then at the end, we want to sit down again. Okay, so it goes like that. Our aggregates are subject to the three types of dukkha mentioned above, the dukkha of pain, which is physical and mental pain, the dukkha of change, in which pleasurable circumstances do not last, and eventually become another form of discomfort. And the pervasive dukkha of conditioning, having a body and mind conditioned by afflictions and karma. This last one is the source of the first two. So I talked about that yesterday. Okay, so it's not three different kinds of dukkha. They're all uh, based on each other, okay? Afflictions and karma condition our experiences and without choice, our bodies fall ill, age and die. Okay. So even we have pleasant experiences. Yeah. But when our mind is out of sorts, we can't enjoy the pleasant experience. And in fact, we don't even notice it. Okay. Have you ever been in a very beautiful, relaxing setting, but your mind has been overwhelmed by jealousy or anger or feeling like unappreciated and left out. Yeah? So there you are in some kind of nice situation, uh, and the mind is still very, very unhappy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's because we're under the influence of afflictions and karma. Mm-hmm. Our minds are overwhelmed by disturbing emotions such as despair and rage. Okay. Now it's interesting. When we feel despair, we don't think of despair as a disturbing emotion, as an affliction, do we? Yeah. We see it as something painful and unwanted. But do we ever say to ourselves, it's based on exaggeration? And I don't have to feel that this in this particular situation. Do we ever think like that? Or when we feel despair, we just say, yeah, it's unpleasant, but what else am I supposed to feel in this situation? There's absolutely nothing good about it. And then we don't try and change our mind because we're convinced that the situation you know, the appearance of the situation to us, we assume is correct, yeah, and it's inherently existent like that, so then the only possible way to feel is despair, you know? In the same way when we think that somebody is criticizing us, we don't investigate, is it a misunderstanding? Is this person experiencing pain themselves? What is really going on in this situation? We just assume, I'm I'm interpreting this. We don't even say I'm interpreting it as criticism. We say it is criticism. And when any person, when they get criticized, they don't like it. Yeah, nobody says whoopee. Well, the high bodhisattvas do. But, you know, none of our friends do. So uh, how is it possible to feel anything but upset when I'm criticized? Everybody feels this way. This is the only possible way to feel. So then we just, you know, get upset and stay in our misery. Yeah. Until maybe we, <laughs> you know, either it fades away be- out of impermanence Or, you know, we we suddenly remember, oh, this is based on my interpretation of the events. You know, the anger, the upset is coming from me. It's not inherent in the situation. Because if it were, then even the bodhisattvas would get angry, when they're criticized. But bodhisattvas go, this is great, you know, these people are using, they're helping me consume my negative karma. And anyway, when people criticize me, what they're really saying is, I'm unhappy. So I hear, (gasps) ah, that I did something wrong and I'm to blame. But actually, that person is saying, I'm unhappy. Yeah. When somebody criticizes you, do you ever think that that person is really saying, I'm unhappy? Oh, we never think that. They're saying, I'm bad. And their words may say, you're bad. But underneath it, why do they think somebody else is bad? Because they're unhappy. So understanding that whatever is under the power of afflictions and karma cannot be a source of lasting joy, we release unrealistic expectations and distance ourselves from the useless pursuit of clinging to samsaric pleasures. So unrealistic expectations. Boy, do we have a lot of them. Okay? Okay? We have a good experience with somebody, and it's like, this person is wonderful. Yeah? Love at first sight. No, I know that's kind of woo-woo, but it's true. We have love at first sight. I know I'm going to marry that person. Yeah? And we're going to live happily ever after, because that's the fairy tales that I heard when I was seven years old. Okay, so we have an unrealistic expectation, yeah, with jobs too. Yeah, you want to tell your story
1: about that? I'm not sure. I remember how it links to this moment, but uh, what what was well, true was that there were young people, younger people, and older people in the same discussion in the same refuge group, who were looking at just this very topic. Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of what brings happiness and what brings satisfaction. And the older people, I would say, "Mm," of course, now they're all quite young, but in their 50s, early 50s. (laughs) um, (laughs) Yeah, very young. (laughs) Um, Or one group, and then there was another group probably in their mid-20s, I think, probably. And um, so in just talking about uh, the satisfaction from work and the expectation that their career would be satisfying, the people in their fifties were done. They were very clear that their careers—they—they I mean, were quite successful people, but that they had not been satisfying. But all around the circle for the younger people was the—you know—not quite there yet. I, there, I, of course, I have to do this work. This is very meaningful work. It's going to—you know it they, was also true about. Um, their wish for families. Mm -hmm. Some of those people we know now, it's not been easy. Uh, But it took a lot of time for the people that in my mind had been around the block a few times with their careers and their relationships to be able to say that, oh, the happiness that was promised, the happiness that we expected, Mm -hmm. the happiness that we longed for did not come and last. Yeah.
0: But it was interesting how the younger people still held out the hope there was going to be job satisfaction. And the people in their 50s knew that that was a false appearance. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, until like... So this is why we, we learn this from the Buddha, because if we can learn it and think about it, then we can understand it and release the unrealistic expectations now, instead of waiting 30 years between your mid-20s to get to your fift- mid-50s and realize it then. So it frees you up to have 30 more years to practice the Dharma without chasing your tail. Okay? But sometimes, I know, looking at my life, you just have to go through things. And there's no other way but to go through it and suffer. And then, if you've heard the Dharma, you go, Oh, that's what the Buddha was saying. That's it. Now I understand. So if you come out of a situation with that kind of understanding that renews your confidence and faith in the Buddha's teachings, that's good. Then you've learned from your experience, and you don't have regret in your life. But some people come out of th- that, and they don't have any spiritual framework to put it in, so they feel bitter and they feel denied, they feel let down by life, okay? So whether we come out saying, okay, that was hard and it took a lot of time, but I'm glad because I really learned something valuable, whether we come out like that or we come out with, boy, I was promised a lot and everything felt flat and this whole life sucks, You know, that depends on our mind, doesn't it? Depends on our mind. And depending on what we think in relationship to those uh, experiences, then we either live the rest of our life in an uplifted way, because we know now what's more important, or we live the rest of our life with a very sour attitude. You know, that I've been cheated. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So it's up to us. That's the thing. Okay. So understanding that whatever is under the power of afflictions and karma cannot be a source of lasting joy, we release the unrealistic expectations and distance ourselves from the useless pursuit of clinging to samsaric pleasures. Instead, we direct our energy toward actualizing true cessations. So the attributes, the first two attributes of impermanence and dukkha are linked. So Arya says in the 400, the impermanent is uh, definitely harmed. What is harmed is not pleasurable. Therefore, all that is impermanent is said to be dukkha. So the impermanent is definitely harmed. In other words, it's not going to be lasting happiness. Okay? Whatever turns out not to be lasting happiness is not pleasurable. And so therefore, linking those two, all that's impermanent, is said to be unsatisfactory. Okay here we're talking about when we talk about all that is per- impermanent we're talking about what's ever under the control of afflictions and karma okay so don't get confused with oh then uh, you know the bodhisattvas ha- experience impermanent things so do they still experience dukkha no that's that's a totally different ball game because they don't react to these things the same way we do, okay? And so a Buddha, you know, a Buddha's mind is impermanent, but that doesn't mean the Buddha's mind experiences dukkha. Mm-hmm. Then Gyalthab, who was uh, one of the foremost disciples of Kappa, then he explains, whatever is impermanent, such as the body, which is a maturation of polluted past karma and afflictions, is definitely damaged by factors causing disintegration and therefore produces aversion. Anything affected by causes of harm whose character is to produce aversion is not pleasurable. Therefore, all that is impermanent and polluted, polluted means under the control of, of ignorance, is said to be dukkha, just as anything that falls into a salt pit becomes salty. It's a good example. Anything that falls in a salt pit it's not going to come out sweeter. It's going to come out saltier. So anything that's under the control of afflictions and karma, you're not going to get lasting happiness out of it. You're going to get eventually some discomfort or displeasure that will produce aversion in the mind. So again, the the sages are not telling us this to make us unhappy, yeah, or to make us feel like, oh, there's no happiness in life. Oh, you know. But it, they they tell us so that we ch- stop chasing grade F happiness and start creating the cause for grade triple A happiness, okay? Right now, we cannot see grade F happiness as disadvantageous, so we chase it. What they're doing in saying this is saying, no! there's some better kind of happiness that comes from stopping the craving, from stopping the attachment, from stopping the the feelings of being offended and angry. So impermanent and polluted things, such as our bodies, are under the influence of afflictions and karma that cause them to disintegrate. An aged or dead body Is considered undesirable and unclean, just as beautiful flowers are ugly when they decay and rot. Yeah, so everybody's becoming older. You know, and how often do they show old people in movies or in advertisements? If you show old people in advertisements, unless you're advertising for an old folks' home, Nobody is going to buy that product. Okay? Because everybody wants to appear young, you know, no just completely unwrinkled skin and you know, so much energy and beautiful and this kind of thing. And yet nobody's becoming that. Yeah. You look at Prince Philip, when he was young and when he's old. The big difference, isn't it? Queen Elizabeth, when she was young and now. Yeah? And look at your, your pictures of your parents, when they were young and now. Yeah? And that's the same thing that's going to happen to us. So get ready, and they're going to take your picture. Yeah, this one over here, she's going to be ready she with her picture. That. Yeah, so that when all your wrinkles are there and your gray hair is. Oh, you can grab it. Out? Oh, good. Thank you. You can make me look 25 again. Oh, yes, please do that. Yeah. Huh? Yes. <laughs> you think you can really make me look 25? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, okay, I want to see that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so anything that disintegrates under the influence of afflictions and karma and produces aversion and distaste in us is by nature dukkha. It lacks a final, findable essence. It is empty. Seeing this leads us to disenchantment with samsara and inspires us to turn our attention to liberation. So that's the point, and you, that's what you have to be aware of when you meditate on this. If you don't come up with that conclusion, then your way of approaching the subject is incorrect. Okay. And you're, you know, if you come out of that meditation, just saying, well, there's no hope, you know, I'm never going to look 25 again, even with Photoshop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you just kind of give up. So, uh, if you, if you come out with that conclusion, then, you know, then you say, is that, did did I need to learn the Dharma in order to, to feel depressed over aging? No, I don't need to learn the Dharma. That's not what the Buddha is is trying to get across to me. He's trying to show me that it's not worth worrying about how I look. And it's more important to work with my mind and create the causes for liberation and awakening. Okay, then the third attribute of true dukkha is the aggregates are empty, okay? Because they lack a permanent, unitary, and independent self. Okay, Mm -hmm. so this is a different usage of the word empty than you may be used to. We're used to empty of inherent existence. Here, empty is meaning the lack of a permanent, unitary, and independent self which is the coarsest object of negation and is an affli- and grasping it is a, an acquired affliction. Okay. So that's what is called empty in the context of the common way of describing the 16 attributes of the four truths so this is not the Prasangika way this is the way in common of all the tradi- the buddhist traditions okay so the third distorted conception hold yeah remember the four distorted conceptions hold what is foul specifically our bodies as beautiful yeah and our whole culture emphasizes that yeah And if your body is not to your liking, and nobody's body is to their liking, because none of us look like the models, and we're supposed to look like the models, and not even the models look like the models, and they're miserable. Okay. So everybody's in this predicament of not liking their bodies. So, and this is how the advertising uh, works, you know. You don't like your body because you bulge where you're not supposed to bulge and you don't bulge where you are supposed to bulge. So gym membership is the solution to that. Okay. You have your gray hair, whether you're a man or woman. How do you solve that? Dye your hair. Okay. You don't have hair. You get some kind of hair growth thing or you get a toupee or I'm sure Donnie is going to open up a special hairdressing college course for, you know, for uh, 999 special price for you to show you how to have a hairdo like his. Okay? So, you know, we're all trying to... to we're, none of us are becoming as beautiful as we would like to be. We're all becoming uglier. So you might as well enjoy becoming uglier (laughs) because it's the reality of the situation. So if there's nothing you can do about it, you might as well enjoy it. Yeah, don't you think that makes more sense than looking in the window, in in the mirror, and going, oh my God, who is that person? When did that happen to me? Yeah? You ever look in the window and say, like, oh, I didn't know I looked like that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you might as well enjoy it. And like I was saying yesterday, people whose self-esteem depends on their looks or their athletic ability, they are especially... Um, Uh, what's the word, given to depression as they age. Yeah. Because their whole self-esteem was based on how this thing, what this thing can do and what it looks like. And it's, you know, it's not getting better. So if you, you know, if your esteem is based on that, then you really feel like you're lost. But... If your esteem is based on, you know, feeling that you have a positive contribution that you can give to the world through the internal development that, that you've made during your life, yeah, and you want to pass that on to the younger generation, uh, or you know, you have a special skill you can o- offer to society, then you know, your your self esteem is salvageable. But then I think, you know, what happens when you get really old and you can't work anymore? So your body not only is ugly and it's weak, but you don't have, you know, the facility that you had before with a career or or whatever. So then, what's the purpose of your life then? Okay if you're a dharma practitioner you see that your life still has a lot of purpose and a lot of meaning Yeah because making your life meaningful and purposeful isn't just about getting other people's approval and about having a reputation Yeah it's about your own internal transformation So you know you can sit in your in your wheelchair and practice the dharma yeah? I mean, you can sit in your wheelchair and be miserable, or you can sit in your wheelchair and practice the Dharma. Yeah? So again, it, it's up to us, how you know, how we want to direct our, our life's energies, even when we're old. So the third distorted conception holds what is foul, specifically our bodies, as beautiful. Our own and others' bodies are filled with ugly substances. How about disgusting substances? Blood, bones, muscles, organs, tissues, excrement, and so on. Yeah? So if you cut it open and laid it all out, look what it's gonna look like. Okay? Because of ignorance, we preen our own bodies, and we see others' bodies as desirable and lust after them. Needless to say, our infatuation with the body is misplaced and leads to disappointment and misery. Okay. I remember in Dharamsala, walking around, doing the circumambulations around the library, and one time, I, I have this image of a pig, but I don't remember people there having pigs so much. But of somebody taking their pig, doing circumambulations around the the library in Dharamsala. and I remember looking that pig, and I find pigs kind of, yeah, um, you know, the whole thing about little this little piggy went to market. They're they're not well anyway. So, you know, and I thought, wow, you know, one pig lusts after the body of another pig. And it's like, ugh, how can you lust after the body of another pig? And then I thought, but that's what human beings do. They lust after somebody's body. What's the difference? So ponder that one for a while. Well, the human body, you know, their eyes are like diamonds, their teeth are like pearls. Well, that's how one pig looks at the other pig, too. Yeah? Do you look at, you know, pork chops or bacon and say, your eyes are like diamonds, your teeth are like pearls? You know, I mean, it's, it's the same thing. What are we lusting after? Okay, but we easily forget this. Oh, so I do have something uh, that I forgot to tell you about that, because uh, yesterday, so yesterday I was telling you how I went to this one Dharma center, and I would they asked me to teach about this, you know, the four truths, and I, I did, and how they really did not like hearing about the body as foul. Okay? So you know, some people have a real. I mean, this was like the whole room. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, like, but our body is useful for the dharma, and our, you know, and and we're attractive so that we can have babies, and babies is, you know, brings bring delight to your to your life, and you know, all these reasons. Okay, so. I don't know if it's just in the West or if it's all in all cultures, but there's a dislike of looking at what the body actually is. So I remembered last night after I was telling you that story that um, some years ago, His Holiness was teaching in Arizona, and they asked him to teach Chapter 8 of Shantideva's text, Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Chapter 8 is the chapter about meditation. So the latter part of the chapter talks about equalizing and exchanging self with others. The first part of the chapter talks about creating a good circumstance so that you can uh, live alone and meditate and develop samadhi and, and serenity. And one of the biggest hindrances to, you know, meditating, especially, you know, developing deep concentration, is that we're attracted to other people's bodies because sex, the sexual desire is one of the strongest uh, attachments we have as human beings. So, the whole first part of chapter eight, Shanti Deva goes into this thing of incredible detail. We'll get to it on our Thursday morning teachings. Talking about what the body is and all the useless things people do to get in a relationship so that they can touch somebody else's body. Okay. And he goes on and on and on about this. Okay. Shanti Deva does not let up. So, they had asked, the organizers had asked His Holiness to teach Chapter 8, but they asked Him, don't teach the beginning part. When I heard that, I was flabbergasted. How can you ask His Holiness not to teach something if He feels it's the right thing to teach? And especially Deva, this incredible sage whose book is over the top, how can you say, don't teach that, because the audience may not like it? But I heard they made that request to His Holiness. His Holiness taught the whole chapter. <laughs> Yeah. He went through the whole thing. Yeah. Why? Because if you don't hear all of the teachings, then you're not going to have, and you just hear the teachings of the topics you like, you're not going to have the preparation in your mind to properly understand or to realize the topics that you like. Yeah so you pick, cherry picking the dharma path I only want light love and bliss is is not going to work to give you the realizations that you need to have light love and bliss okay you have to look at all the stuff yeah i was so shocked when i heard that it's just like you know how can you ask His Holiness not to teach something that Shanti Deva taught? Anyway, okay. There are two aspects to seeing the aggregates as unattractive. The first focuses on the body and sees that its origin, organs, fluids, and so forth are foul. No one finds the inside of the body gorgeous. In fact, we clean away everything that the body excretes. Don't we? Everything. yeah, that the body that comes out of the body, we have to clean away. The second way of focusing on the body understands that since uh, understands that uh, the foul, seeing the aggregates is un- unattractive. Okay, understands that since the aggregates are impermanent and unsatisfactory by nature, in other words, the first two attributes, because of those two, the body is unattractive and our afflictive thoughts are undesirable. So the body is unattractive, that's showing how the physical aggregates are not to be clung to, and our afflictive thoughts show how the mental aggregates are also undesirable. As such, our samsaric aggregates are not worth craving and clinging to, for they, have the capacity to bring a, uh, for they lack the capacity to bring us enduring well-being. This inspires us to turn our attention to creating the causes for liberation. So again know what the purpose of meditating on this is. It's to turn our attention to creating the causes for liberation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very helpful, personally, I found it very helpful to meditate on the body as unattractive, whether it's somebody else's body or my own body. Because I think at the time of death, when craving for this body is so strong, If I can look and say, but this is just, you know, a a sack full of disgusting stuff. There is nothing here to cling to that's desirable. There's nothing about it that is I or mine, you know. Then, and if I can remember that at the time of death, because I'm well, if I habituate myself with that well uh, while I'm alive then it will become much easier to let go. Yeah? Because I won't see the body as something worth clinging to. Mm -hmm. And maybe I won't see it taking another kind of body like this as desirable either. And then hopefully I'll think of Amitabha or I'll think of Nagarjuna and Sukhavati Yeah, instead of, I want a body, I want a body because my body gives me identity. I exist if I have a body, you know, instead of falling prey to that kind of mind at the time of death. Okay, so how do the aggregates being empty counteract that distortion of Seeing what is foul as attractive, there's a diff- There's two different positions about how you uh, counteract the, dis- the distorted conception that the aggregates are fou- are beautiful. So some people say it's by seeing that there that uh, the the there's no permanent, unitary, independent person. And you don't understand how that works, but that's to come. Other people say, actually, you overcome that by meditating on um, the same antidote and things being dukkha by nature, which is the same antidote for overcoming, uh, seeing what is pleasant, what is unpleasant, and what is painful as being pleasant and happiness. Okay? Because when when you look at the four, impermanence counteracts, uh, I mean, seeing things as permanent, that distortion, yeah? Seeing things as dukkha by nature overcomes seeing uh, what is unsatisfactory by nature as pleasurable. Some people say, in addition, that one of dukkha also overcomes seeing what is foul as beautiful, because instead you come to see it as in the nature of dukkha. Other people say you overcome seeing what is foul as beautiful by understanding empty, which is there is no permanent, unitary, independent person. Okay, so there's two different ideas about what opposes that misconception. Okay, so let's go back to the aggregates being empty, refutes the permanent, unitary, independent self, or Atman, conceived as conceived by the non-Buddhists. Permanent here means the self is eternal and does not change from one life to the next. So there's a permanent essence, there's a permanent soul, yeah, that just goes from one life to the next, never changes. And this is the essence of the person. Unitary means not made of parts. It's just one thing. But actually, how can you have something that's not made of parts? Everything has parts. And independent, in this context, means not depending on causes and conditions. Okay? So, because a soul doesn't depend on causes and conditions, it's permanent, yeah? And it doesn't change from one life to the next, from one moment to the next. next causes, conditions, whatever you experience in your life does not change your soul. Okay? So such a self or soul has a nature that is entirely different from that of the aggregates. It is forever unchanged, monolithic, all-pervasive, and completely separated from conditioned phenomena. The aggregates, in contrast, change, consist of parts, and are influenced by causes and conditions. So the aggregates cannot possibly be such a self, okay? The attribute of empty okay, also refutes the existence of an independent creator who is unchanging, monolithic, and not affected by causes and conditions, okay? So whether you're grasping uh, a permanent, unitary, uh, independent self or a permanent unitary creator, this thing of seeing it as empty, as changing, okay, as consisting of parts, as influenced by causes and conditions, overcomes both ideas, grasping at a self, grasping at a permanent creator. Because most traditions, when they talk about the creator, you know, the creator was not created. Was it? Yeah. I don't remember in Sunday school them ever talking about God being created. God was just always there. Okay. Which means unproduced. Not arising out of causes and conditions. God is one thing. Yeah. And who he is isn't influenced. Although he can create. But then that's where you have problems, because how can something be a cause or a condition for creation without changing itself? Yeah Did you ever think about that? Yeah. How does God create without God changing? And how did God come into existence without depending on some kind of causes? Okay? So you can see that that same refutation works for the soul and for the idea of a a permanent uh, creator. So how does the third attribute, empty, counteract the notion of the body as attractive? Okay? So our mistaken belief that the foul body is attractive and pure involves holding the person and the aggregates to be separate when in fact they are the same nature. So the person and the aggregates are different, but they are not different natures. They are not different entities, okay? So they're the same nature, which means that if one is there, the other one's going to be there too. Okay. So during the Buddha's time, so here's the historical background why this one counteracts seeing the body is pure. During the Buddha's time, people adhered to uh, adhered, adhered strongly to the caste system. And the Brahmins prided themselves on being pure because they were born from Brahma's mouth, while those of lower caste were born from the lower parts of Brahma's body and thus were considered impure. But Brahma is pure, but still the lower parts of his body were impure. But being born from his mouth, somehow the mouth is pure. Don't ask me questions about that one, please. Okay. Um, so Brahmins maintained strict rules of cleanliness to the extent that they did not touch the bodies of lower caste people, eat with them, or use the same utensils. And even though Gandhiji did his, well, the Buddha, first of all, and centuries later, Gandhiji did their best to stop The caste system and and help people realize that, you know, it's a total misconception to see people like that. Still to this day, the caste system exists and is strong. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. If you read an Indian newspaper, you will see, and this is just showing different cultures, how different cultures work. You will see in the advertising department, announcements about, you know, attractive boy, age 27, Brahmin caste, has, you know, uh, MS degree in electrical engineering, wants to marry a Brahmin girl who is this tall and also has this kind of education. You will see those kind of ads, and with the parents seeking appropriate uh, spouses, for their kids, and many, many of them mentioned the caste. Yeah. It's alive and well. This is one reason by, uh, why Dr. Ambedkar, uh, became a Buddhist. He was uh, an Indian in the, in the Indian government. He was in the untouchable caste. He became a Buddhist, and then he helped thousands uh, upon thousands of untouchables convert to Buddhism because Buddhism doesn't believe in the caste system. so it gave the people some kind of freedom from that. So it's not that all the Dalits converted, but many of them did in you know a particular uh, state or province in in India. okay. Um, The Buddha opposed the caste system and the notion of a, quote, quote, pure self that was its basis. By teaching that there is no pure, eternal, monolithic self that is separate from the aggregates, he pointed out that all samsaric bodies, no matter what caste people belong to, are unattractive and impure." So the Buddha, by refu- re- refuting the whole idea of, you know, a self that is unchanging and eternal, that is monolithic, that doesn't depend on causes and conditions, that, you know, was pure from the beginning, what he's showing is that the, all the aggregates, no matter whose they are, are impure. So no matter whether you're a Brahman or you're a Dalit, the body is foul. Okay, so that's how seeing uh, this one, uh, this attribute of empty overcomes seeing what is impure as pure, okay? So although the prasangikas agree with the above, their unique viewpoint of the third attribute is expressed in the following syllogism. The aggregates are empty because of arising dependently. Okay? So that's how they uh, would define this attribute. Uh, how The syllogism we had in initially, the aggregates are empty because they lack a permanent, unitary, and independent self. So this one is there. Are uh, are empty because they lack, uh, because they arise arise dependently. Okay. And so that uh, syllogism can be used to overcome the grasping at inherent existence. Okay. So this uh, syllogism expresses the emptiness of inherent existence of phenomena. If the subject were the person, it would express the emptiness of the person. The reason, dependent arising, proves the emptiness of both the person and the aggregates because in both cases, inherent existence is being negated. The reason in this syllogism could also be, yeah, the aggregates are empty because of depending on causes and conditions or because they depend on parts. Okay, so when we talk about dependent arising, there's different levels of it, one being uh, causes and conditions, one being parts, and the deepest or the most subtle level being dependent on uh, a term and concept.
1: So the selflessness uh, talked about here, it pertains to uh, a person. It's not the selflessness of phenomena. When it says the aggregates are empty, they lack yeah. a permanent unitary. No,
0: it's it's still seen as the selflessness of an, of person because you're saying the the aggregates are not the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's describing what is called not self. Okay? okay, you're looking for who the person is, and you see that the aggregates are not the person. So it's a selflessness of person. Good question. Yeah. I, I see that the word pure comes up a lot in different contexts, and I I find that I struggle to actually understand what it means. Mm-hmm. With regarding the mind, I can see, okay, that's usually referring to not having the afflictions in the nature of the mind.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not sure I understand what pure versus impure regarding the body actually means here. I'm wondering if you could maybe provide a definition. Okay. Well impure, in, in you know, one way is that it's um it is foul. If you cut it open, it is, you know, here in the in that context, pure means uh, pure means totally clean, totally attractive. Okay. Whereas the body is unclean, basically. And not so attractive when we open it up or when we age. In some, uh, contexts, like when we chant the, the sutra, uh, of the wisdom going beyond, like we did today. Yeah. There pure means empty. It means pure of inherent existence. So there's, yeah, different meanings for the word pure.
1: Refuting the creator-God story, how, how do you refute the, the notion or the proposition that God is beginningless just like we are? That God is changing, an impermanent mm-hmm. phenomenon that exists beginninglessly, just like every sentient being does? But that isn't how people speak of God. Oh, but if people yeah. who are, who are kind of justifying their, their belief in God and they get challenged with something like this, I mean, it, it, it it's a reasonable place to go. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah, but if you're asserting that God is unchanging and somebody shows you something about, you're asserting one characteristic of God and somebody shows you something that contradicts that characteristic, then your whole notion falls apart. But that's
1: a place you could go.
0: That's, that's... You, you, could, you could go there, but if you're still asserting that God is permanent and he's a permanent creator and didn't and doesn't change, then but you know, if God even if God's beginningless, he has to change it moment by moment in order to create so the argument still falls apart <laughs> yeah this is you know when we, when we look uh, uh at dharma you know and he's going through things you see how somebody will assert something and he will disprove one Attribute of what they're asserting. And then that person will, you know, say, Oh, well, okay, I'll change it a little bit. And they come up with a different thing. Yeah. But then that can be refuted. And if the people are, are st- like the person may say, Oh, okay. Uh, well you know, okay, God, um, you know, maybe changes to create, but God is beginningless, and so he, you know, he He is under the influence of causes and conditions. And then you say, but, you know, if he's under the influence of causes and conditions, you already said he's impermanent even though he creates. So how does that happen? Okay. So, yeah, you already said he was permanent even though he creates. So, you know, how how does that happen? Okay, so you hit somebody's assertion from different angles. Oh, also, I should say, because in the Bible it says, in the beginning. So you're asserting a beginning. If you're asserting a beginning, then what caused the beginning?
2: How did the beginning
0: arise? So this is in your scripture that it says that, and you believe that. So how do you explain that?
2: Have something anyway. It said God always was. Also, hmm? it, I don't actually want to dispute the point, but it says that God always was, yeah. even even before the beginning when He created everything. The beginning is contextualized in creation, but God always was even before creation. Yeah, but so sure,
0: that uh, itself doesn't make sense, does no, it? No,
2: I, I agree. I don't want to dispute it. I <laughs> just wanted to add, um but what I do want to discuss is the the. First part of the, maybe the second chapter, the second full chapter on the first page, it says that we're. Wait a minute,
0: the, where, where are you?
2: The part that gives the definitions of permanent, unitary, and independent. What
0: paragraph, or what page? 24. Yeah. Second paragraph. So, so the definition
2: there of independence as independent in yeah. the context of mean not depending on causes and conditions. Right. And we're using that to refuse the very gross level of the soul. Yes. But then in the Prasangika definition, or this Prasangika syllogism, it also is saying yeah, that.
0: Yeah. So that's we're using the problem. That same. It depends. You can use the same argument, but what's crucial is what you define as the ob- object of negation. If you define the object of negation, a, a, a permanent, independent, um, You know, a unitary soul, then saying that it depends on causes and conditions refutes the permanent part of it. If you say that something is not inherently existent because it is created by causes and conditions, yeah, then what in if something to be inherent existent, yeah, it would have, um, it would have to be permanent because Things that are inherently existent do not depend on any other factors, be they causes, conditions, parts, term and concept. They're completely immune from being affected by any other factor. So then if you say, but you know, oh, you know, you're refuting inherent existence of yourself, then, you know, you say, well, I'm produced by causes and conditions, therefore I can't be permanent, and if I were inherently existent, I would have to be permanent, okay? So permanent is not the definition of inherent existence like it is um permanent being the quality of uh the soul, but, if something were inherently existent it would have to be permanent but yeah we we show that things are not per, are not permanent so therefore they can't inherently exist
2: struggling with the nuance but it doesn't sound like inherently existent and the soul are very different in any other way than the unitary portion now
0: no because the, uh, the, the prasangika view, the inherently existent one, exists without being uh, conceived and given a name. So totally independent of the mind that conceives and designates it with a name. Okay? So anything that is independent like that has to have some kind of essence that is it, that does not depend on anybody conceiving of it and giving it a name. So this would be a thermos without the existence of human beings. Could this be a thermos without the existence of human beings? No, because human beings created it and they gave and it has a specific function according to why they created it and they gave it a name thermos and said when you call something this name it it indicates something that performs this function okay so your so the everything that exists depends on being conceived and given a name It doesn't exist in its own right. When we see the thermos, it it looks to us like it is radiating, I'm a thermos, I'm a thermos, I'm a thermos. Yeah. But then when you investigate what in this is radiating, I'm a thermos, and what in this is a thermos, you can't find anything. And then you see, well... What do you mean, there's a thermos here? Well, there's a dependently designated thermos because we put the parts together, and when we put the parts together, we developed a concept that this is an object, and as a society, we agreed on a function and agreed on a name, okay? So this is much a much subtler way that things exist, than saying, uh, like, the self is permanent, unitary, and, and independent of causes and conditions. Yeah, it's much more subtle, much subtler. Yeah.
2: So the last part that you had stopped at before asking questions on page, the end of the first paragraph on page 25, it says, the reason in this syllogism could also be because of being dependent on causes and conditions or because they depend on parts. Mm-hmm. And and then you, you said, or name and concept, but yeah. which it seems you have to have that name and concept part in order to thoroughly and completely refute our object of negation. Okay. Why is it not included in this so, paragraph?
0: because as we've, the, in our classes with Jeffrey, we've been going through that you You can understand about things depending on term and concept, but you don't realize the full meaning of that until after you've realized emptiness. So you can't use that as the reason to prove emptiness. You have to use one of these other kinds of dependency.
2: So one of these others would be sufficient? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're not going to understand everything at the beginning. It's okay. Yeah.
1: If I remember, I think Insight into Emptiness has a chart that compares these different types of person that Mm -hmm. you can look at.
0: Yes. Um, Someone asked, what if someone says that God is unchanging to mean that His or Her wisdom and compassion is constant, in the same way that the Buddha's wisdom and compassion is constant? Yeah, we do, but we don't say that Buddha's compassion is unchanging. Yeah, for well, this this has to do with differences in 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 terms. In English, when we uh, okay in Buddhism, when we say changing, yeah it it means different than eternal. Okay? So Buddha's compassion is eternal. He doesn't lose it. But his compassion changes moment by moment by moment because one moment he has compassion for this one and another moment for this one and so on. Okay? So don't confuse unchanging and uh, permanent with eternal, they're different, okay, okay, so the aggregates are selfless, let's see how far we get with this one, okay, so the aggregates are selfless because they lack a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, so remember, this is what is in common with all the Buddhist schools. So if a self-sufficient, substantially existent person existed, it would be the same nature as the aggregates. So yesterday we said that that kind of person is different from the aggregates, okay, but something can be different without being different natures. Something can be different but be the same nature, okay? So, for example, we talk about um, conventional truths and ultimate truths. They're one nature, meaning one doesn't exist without the other, yeah? But they're different. Whatever is an ultimate truth is not a conventional truth and vice versa, okay? So don't confuse different and different natures, and don't confuse one and one nature. (laughs) Yeah? Those things are different. Volume 7, those things are explained more clearly. Here they, yeah? Okay. But in general, to be one means something has to be exactly the same both in what it is and what it is called. Okay? So, the thermos, if you have two, what color is this? Pink? If you have two pink thermoses that look alike, from a Buddhist viewpoint, they are not the same. In ordinary language, we say they're the same. In Buddhist language, they are not the same. Because to be the same, it has to be the same thing in terms of its content, and the name, okay? So some objects have two different names, uh, like this, can be called a cough drop, and it can be called a sweet. So then it's different, yeah? Because to be one, to be one, it has to be same in what it is in the content and in the name. To be one nature, it means that when one thing exists, the other thing has to be there too. Okay? There's different ways of being one nature. One way of being one nature is two things that are equivalent, like product and impermanent. Whatever is a product, is an impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is a product. That's one kind of one nature. Another kind of one nature is the, th- the thermos and its color. So these two are not equivalent. So we say the, co- the pink is one nature with the thermos, meaning if there's a thermos, You know, if there's this thing, it's going to be pink. We do not say the thermos is one nature with the color pink because the thermos could be a different color. You could paint it something else. Okay? So that's one and one nature. Then you have different and different nature. Different just means they're not the same in content and name. Okay? So uh, two white... Cups that look the same are different because they're different cups. Okay. Different nature means that they are unrelated. Okay. That they don't have to exist. It doesn't mean that necessarily that they're totally unrelated. It means that they, they don't have to exist at the same time. Okay, so a cause and its effect are different natures. The cause, you know, the seed exists before the sprout. Yeah, so they're different natures, but they are related because they're cause and effect with each other. Okay. Okay, so it it takes a while to understand this, yeah? Okay, so if a self-sufficient, substantially-existent person existed, it would be the same nature as the aggregates. When we say, I, or my body and mind, we have the impression that there is a self who is the owner and controller of the body and mind. Okay, this I instructs the mind to think and the body to move. Whereas we usually identify a person by seeing his body, hearing her voice, or thinking of her mind, a self sufficient, substantially existent person could be identified without causing, cognizing any of the aggregates. Okay? so the fourth attribute negates the existence of such a self okay according to the prasangikas unique view a self-sufficient substantial existent self is a coarse object of negation one that can be refuted by a conventional reliable cognizer you don't even need to do ultimate analysis to, to discover the lack of a self-sufficient, substantial existent person. You do need ultimate analysis to realize the emptiness of inherent existence. Uh, they assor- the Prasangikas assert that the fourth distorted conception is grasping all phenomena whatsoever as inherently existent, meaning they have their own intrinsic essence and exist under their own power, independent of all other factors. So they exist from their own side. They are self-instituting. Yeah. For prasangikas emptiness and selflessness come to the same point, and they assert emptiness and selflessness for both the uh, persons and aggregates. The ignorance that grasps inherent existence is a big troublemaker. Based on it, we incorrectly consider ourselves to be self-enclosed entities, become attached to our individual well-being, and see everything in relationship to ourselves. Grasping inherent existence stimulates distorted conceptualization which projects attractiveness and ugliness on people and things that don't have them. As a result, we become indignant when criticized and arrogant when praised. Okay. This leads to manipulative behavior, personal anguish, social discord, and vicious wars. It is important to understand this by examining our own experiences. Okay. So because all phenomena are baseless, they lack an inherent nature, it is possible for the wisdom realizing the emptiness of inherent existence to overcome and dispel self-grasping ignorance, which holds phenomena to exist inherently. Okay, So the realization of emptiness is in direct contradiction to the grasping at inherent existence. Seeing with wisdom that all persons and phenomena are selfless, that they lack inherent existence, is the path freeing us from samsara. Okay. So we'll stop here for today. You might take a look at the um, chart on page 27, you know, that shows the distorted conceptions and then the attributes of true dukkha that that uh, contradict or that overcome those distorted conceptions okay so think about it this in your evening meditation your morning meditation and try and come to the conclusion that the buddha wants us to co- come to which is that we want to get out of samsara and attain the liberation and full awakening okay